Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Martin Gregg and this is Between the Lines, a podcast telling the stories behind great sports writing. Chances are he came to Michael Calvin's writing through his later books, The Nowhere Men, Living on the Volcano or Hunger in Paradise. Well, before all that, there was Family, Mike's first book in which he was given unlimited access to a season at Millwall Football Club. The book also has a fascinating backstory, with Mike having self-published the first edition, which was then nominated for Football Book of the Year. When I first read the book in 2011, I was blown away and it remains my favourite of Mike's books. Here we talk about how important access is to great sports writing and how he sets the scene for interviewees to bear their souls. Just a small note here, we also discuss Emma Hayes in this podcast. Emma is the current manager of Chelsea Women and has a chapter dedicated to her in Mike's latest book, State of Play. Enjoy. Yeah, so let's rewind to 2011. The first time we met was at the British Sports Book Awards at Savoy Hotel. We were nominated for our first title, which was in search of Alan Gozine. You were on that shortlist as well with Family. And I didn't have the time to read all the books on that shortlist, but I read Family. And I remember saying to my business partner, Neil, this is a fantastic book. And if we don't win, then I really hope that this yeah. does win. And in the end, it was actually, I remember that it was, it was highly commended by the, the yeah, judges, yeah. which was really nice. Um, neither of us won in the end, but... Complete, complete fiasco, that, by the way. <laughs> you should have won. But um, it was an interesting evening. I remember thinking that the stories that we wanted to tell, the story that you told in that book, was kind of the reason that we wanted to set up the company, because we felt that if you tell proper human stories, people will be engaged. Mm. And before that, I felt there wasn't proper acknowledgement that these stories had commercial value, that they could reach a wider audience, that that is what people wanted. Mm. They didn't just want you know, the Wayne Rooney turnaround book. Mm. Um, mm. They wanted something more substantial. I guess the last nine or ten years has been proof of that because you have been telling these stories, but you found a, a, a big audience. Mm. So that must be hugely encouraging in terms of the point you're at in your career now when you can look back and say, well, I've got this canon behind me. These are stories that people want to hear. And, then, and therefore the people that you're trying to access will be more amenable to, to mm. speaking to you. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's been a, you know, pretty, a pretty wild journey in many ways. Mm. But, um, you know, I've had one guy said to me the other day, oh, well, you know, you're doing well. You're now a brand author. And I hate stuff like that. I thought, what does that mean? And he said, well, it's a bit like music. You know, someone will buy one of your books. They like it in the way that like, like a CD from a particular mm. band. Then they go and buy three or four others. Mm-hmm. which I found I was quite nonplussed at that but I suppose you're right that the books I've, I've always felt that books write themselves 
you know, I start off with a, you know, with a, with an, a, an overarching sort of view of what I want to do, but how I do it, I just, it, it just comes, it just, just, you know, you, you go down highways and byways, and I suppose the, the family was, you know, a book that was fantastic for me because it proved to me one that there was an audience there, and you know, I assumed the, Mill, the type of club that Millwall is, I knew I'd, you know, sell seven or eight thousand to Millwall fans because. It's their club, and, and they, they own it. They really own it emotionally. But what I found was word of mouth, which I think is the, you know, the, almost one of the fundamentals of our business, meant that fans from other clubs were picking up, oh, have you read the Millwall book? Because that book, I suppose it dropped the veil, and every fan of every club wonders what goes on in their dressing room yeah. at 10 to yeah. 3, yeah. or whenever they play these days. Yeah. And... The great privilege that I had in doing that book was, and it, and it came, it came about in a sort of strange way. It, it was my brother's fortieth, and a bunch of us went to Vegas to do Vegas things, basically. And I, I roomed with a guy called Alan Jacket, who's a brother of Ken Jacket, who was, you know, childhood friend of mine. And he was saying, "Oh, Ken," he said, "That he said that's a really interesting club." So I, when I got back, I phoned Ken and said, "Look, I've got this idea. I want to do a book." but I need complete access. And you think, I've got no chance of this. And Ken, Ken thought about it for about 10, 15 seconds and basically said, yeah, let's do it. I'll speak to the chief executive and the, and the owner, and if they give the go-ahead, we'll go for it. And Andy Ambler, the chief executive, got it. He's now at the FA. And John Berrelson, the owner, loved the idea. And they actually, Millwall still use that book as part of their marketing. Wow. Uh, you know, family and all. It, it's... So, and so it's it's made it's made sense for them because they feel it's the, it is a, it is the authentic picture of their football club and what it means to people and what it represents. In terms of the the publication process, you just you talked there, and I remember you saying this on the night that you'd actually self-published it. Mm. Uh, I didn't realise until two minutes ago that you were you were stuffing envelopes and doing all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah. Um, that's that's fascinating. How how did that come about? Like, did you try and did you go around the houses looking for a book deal? And people were people thought, nah, this is a story that, that won't sell. I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I had an agent at the time, God bless him, who, who knocked on a few doors and got them slammed in his face. And the view was, who wants to read a book about Millwall? They're a little club in the <coughs> Championship or League One with about five thousand hooligans following them. Well, who wants to read that? Mm-hmm. And I suppose it was the sometimes actually. You know, old school publishing, it's changed irrevocably. Now I'm having discussions with people who, who, who really understand the power of you know, the human interest in sport. Mm, yeah. It's now not about, as you said earlier, it's not about the big names anymore, it's about the big stories and the affecting stories. And the thing about you know, Ken and everyone at Millwall was they had the, almost like the moral courage to allow someone like me, yeah. run, giving me, me the run of the place. Yeah. And for me it was uniquely... Um, educational mm-hmm. because I was part of the dressing room mm-hmm. I had my own when I when so you know because people have said to me well why don't you do a TV documentary of the book well if I'd have had a camera on my shoulder they wouldn't have people wouldn't have reacted so naturally mm-hmm. I used to stand inside the shower and I could see the whole dressing room and I always just have a little piece of paper and just scribbling scribbling little notes and they behaved completely naturally uh-huh. and very quickly. You know, the process is, when I went in, first day of pre-season training, 
the senior pro at the end of it, Neil Harris, who's now the manager, trotted over and was basically sussing me out. Oh, hello, yeah. mate. How are you doing? What are you doing? Okay. Within three games of pre-season, I've been drawn into the group and I've been accepted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, it helps that their bosses, the people who pay the players' wages, they, they want me in there. Yeah. But it's like, oh, well, it's Mike the writer. Mm-hmm. They didn't really know what I was doing, mm-hmm. but they thought, right, okay, draw them into the group. So, like, in the pre-match huddles, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm into the huddle mm-hmm. and, you know, doing the high fives and all that sort of malarkey. But what I did do then, you know, so I'm there, I'm there when they're fighting, I'm there when they're screaming mm-hmm. at one another. And what I said to them was, look, because uh, they said, well, what are you going to use? And I said, well, I'd be completely transparent. And I showed the manuscript to Ken and a, a couple of the senior pros. And I said, look, I'm showing you this. I'm not going to change anything mm-hmm. um, just because you don't like it. If it's factually inaccurate, of course. Mm-hmm. A player came to me and he said, look, you know, the passage you've done for me, uh, like, um, uh, Schofield, he, he basically he, he talked about the loss of his, his 23-year-old uh, brother mm-hmm. uh, had died um, in his sleep. And he spoke emotionally how essentially he was playing for him and uh, the impact on him. And uh, he, came, he came to me and said, look, Mike, can you take that passage out? Because, you know, it's right. He said, you captured the, 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 the tone of the conversation. It's all, you know, you quoted me accurately. But I know if my mum reads this, it'll kill her. So I, so I took it out. Mm. Yeah. Because and that that got me respect within the group. Right. I saw the group. And I say when they were when they were low, when they were fighting one another, mm-hmm. and friends, you know, punching one another, mm-hmm. and I learned, It was so educational because I, I, I it, it was a light bulb moment for me because I understood that insecurity frames everything in football. Yeah, yeah. So here were guys who literally depended on on the win bonus for the, mm-hmm. for the little extras in life. Some of them depended on it to pay the mortgage. Yeah. So it's serious. It's win and loss. It's, it's, it's brutal stuff. And I suppose from that, fans of other clubs read it, but also I began to get, get a sort of a feedback mm-hmm. that players were reading it mm-hmm. because they saw themselves in yeah. the stories of these yeah. pros. Yeah. So I suppose that's where I've been really lucky is that People in the game are prepared to read what I do. Yeah, and yeah. it's not the blanket. Oh, it's shit because you know the, the media haven't got a clue, and you know they're confrontational and everything else. And I suppose the, the way because people say, well, how do you get people to to open up in the way that you do? Mm-hmm. And I think my style is conversational. Yeah. I, never, I never have an interview. I, just, I, yeah. I try and have a conversation yeah. with someone yeah. where you allow them to speak for themselves. Then I allow the reader to make their own mind up about them. And so there are some people where I look at and I think. I'm not having you at any price, mate. But yeah. um, I'll give him the platform that, that yeah. he deserves out of, out of respect, even if and it's down to other people what they think. Yes. Yeah. You, you, one can be subtle about the way that you frame things and everything yeah. else, but um, I suppose people think they'll get a fair hearing, mm-hmm. but also they will... The picture that they see, the pages that they read, actually they recognise they recognise yeah. reality of it. It's interesting you say that because I reread Family this week. I've reread, I've, I've read State of Play, and one thing that did jump out was 
that you're, you're unafraid to use quotes quite extensively. Mm, mm. But the interesting thing about it is the quality of the quotes that you've managed to, to, to mine out of folk. It's, it, it's interesting you talk about that kind of conversational style, but it must be about creating the right conditions. It's creating the right environment for people to to talk openly and talk mm. freely. But it's also time, isn't it? It's saying this is not going to this is not going to be a twenty minute interview that you're going to go you know in and out and I'm away home to my family. We're going to do this properly. We're going to mm. sit down and we're going to have a proper conversation as if we were friends in a pub, mm. you know, chatting mm. about life. That that's what comes through when when you talk about the quality of the quotes that you get that you. There must be a huge time investment um, mm, mm. from from the people that you're interviewing yeah. to get to these points where it's it's real gold. Yes, uh, you know, it, it can take time to establish a degree of trust. Mm. But I think, as I say, the setting is important. I've had a few people come around to my house and spend a day at my house, and um, you know, we might go for a walk. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I, I think that you know, as an in, you know, because you know, and you've done the same thing, I'm sure. You're sitting ac- across the table from someone. And it's our, it's our business, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Working out people. So you're reading body language, you're getting an idea of you know, the inflection in the voice and all that stuff. And there is a moment where you, where you think, I've got it, yeah, I've got him, I've got him. Uh, I'm just starting a book, I'm just starting a research on a book uh, on golf. And those guys are really protected. But when you get to them, they're gold dust. And they all say to me, I, you know, you're challenging me here, but I really like this because no one ever asked me these questions. Yeah. And I'm talking to them about the inner game and the inner voices and all that sort of stuff, the psychology of it. And they say, when we go into a press conference, it's all, well, what's the course like this week? The, the green's fast, da 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 The most important questions that you can ask people involve implicit respect in terms of, right, make me understand. How can I understand what you do? Yeah. Tell me how you do your job. Why are you so good at it? Yeah. Those sort of open-ended questions they respond to. Yeah. And what you're doing is you're actually saying to someone, you know, tell me about something that's entranced you since you were a kid. Yeah. Why did you get? You know, why is the little kid still in the game 30 years later? Why do you do what you do? Why do you put up with the crap? You know, does it affect you? Does it affect your kids? Does it affect your wife? Mm-hmm. So they respond to that in, in a completely different way. Now, you're yeah. right... You you do need to invest time in it. And I'm lucky that because the books have had a modicum of success, I can basically, I I, I very rarely do newspaper work anymore because I find um, long-form book writing really, really compelling in terms of what it takes out of me as Mm -hmm. well. Because, again... Yeah, you know, to use, you know, I, I did a I did a co-write with Joe Barton where the book was, you know, been pretty successful. It's you know, sold you know, bucket loads of books, and I was quite intrigued by him as an individual. Where uh, he came to, he read my my stuff, and you know, there was the usual his manager, my age, my literary agent, all that stuff was going on, and I wasn't sure. I, I thought I'm not sure I'm having you, mate, but I thought I'll, I'll have dinner with you in Liverpool, and. We sat down, and I'd, I'd obviously done the journo bit. You do your research, don't you, before you sit down. So I'd phoned a few people, and Sean Dyche was brilliant. He basically said, look, treat him like a man. You give him 100%, he'll give you 100% back. If you cut a corner or do something tricky, he'll kill you. And so I sat down and, and said, well, 
look, Joe, I'll be up front with you. If I judge you on your social media profile and all the other stuff you get up to, I think you're a twat. And I said, before you check it, here's what I wrote about you in 2008, here's what I wrote about you in 2010. And he started laughing and he said, well, that's why I want you to do it. Mm. And we came to a, um, an arrangement whereby I said, look, if, you want, if, if I ask you to do something in this book, you've got to do it. Because if you don't, I walk away. I don't care how, how far we are along. So I said, we're going to prison. And we went to prison together. Um, I said, there, there'll be things I ask you to do which might, you might seem think are weird. So I'm, I'm a great believer in the power of buildings and that sort of like almost spiritual sense of, of a place and time. And so with Joe, I wanted him to be, to be reflective. So I took him to the Anglican Cathedral in Liverpool for a day. And we sat next to the tomb of Lord Derby, one of the you know, forefathers of Liverpool. And I spoke for a day and just wanted him to be reflective about his life. And, mm, and so I suppose you know, I've got, the, t- I've got the, the privilege of the time to do that. No, it's, yeah. a busy, it's a busy life because I'm juggling quite a few balls at the moment. A lot yeah. of, you know, stuff for BT Sport and stuff like that. But I, I, find, I find books great because it, it takes something out of me yeah. as well as the, as, as the interviewee and the subject. Yeah. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's interesting you talk about the, the kind of moments in a conversation that you think, bang, I've got them. And uh, it reminded me of Emma Hayes, the chapter in yeah. State of Play. I thought it was... A, Fantastic! I thought she came across so well. Yeah. Um, but she talks about showing empathy towards these 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 young people in extraordinary situations. And she says, once you you crack it, it's like a torrent. You know, it floods out of them because they're desperate to uncork this stuff. Yeah. You know. Yeah. But it's investing the time in them. It's investing the showing them empathy to get to that point. Emma's, Emma's a good point because when I asked her to do do do, do the piece for the book, she said, "Look, I've read all your books. I love them." Uh, and she, and she actually, and I'm not bigging myself up here, honestly, but she's saying it's a privilege to be part of the book. And when, when the books come out, I've had a few people just say, "You know what? How how important it, and how humble they feel to be part of the book," mm. which makes me feel, you know blows me away to be honest but yeah you were right Emma 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 was waiting to unload on that but it was the breadth of what she talked to about and you know I was in a in a delicate situation because like as a as a male observer of sport we were getting some pretty heavy areas sexual the sexuality of the dressing room um, 
you know, the physiology of the, men- the menstrual cycle, all that. As a male observer, I'm thinking I might get some stick for this because I might, you know, I'm, I might lie my- make myself open to accusations of, of prurience or ignorance. <laughs> Yet, it was interesting. I, uh, the book went around the publisher's office and uh, largely female staff, and they all absolutely were blown away by Emma's chapter because they identified with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's very rare that that, the sort of subject matter, you know, gets out Mm -hmm. in in the modern mainstream media. So it was very funny. I did a a talk sport special. They did a 90-minute special on the book with uh, Sam Matterface. And Emma came on and... uh, you know, Emma was talking about you know the complexity, the emotional complexity of the, of the menstrual cycle, but also the physical uh, things like, for instance, her goalkeeper at certain stages of the month can jump four inches higher, uh, but at the same time she is eight times more likely to get a ligament injury. And so, as a, as a male, I'm thinking, well, I just didn't know that, didn't put it into any context. She talked about well, those goalkeepers, by the way, also they. They're about four inches, on average, smaller than the male goalkeeper. Yeah. Yet they're still in the same, same goal. Same size of goals, yeah. You know, same same type yeah. of pitch. So that's why we've got to get context in looking at women's football. So all these things she was talking about in really, you know, almost strident tones, and it was yeah. it was it, it was great because I'm thinking that was that was the moment I'm thinking when people read this, one it'll educate them, and two it might make them think about their own attitude towards certain issues yeah. and, and that as a, as a writer it's, it's you know you're pressing a little button there and, yeah. and, and I love that I just yeah. thought it was great it was interesting but just the fact that her as a, as a manager and a leader is kind of doing similar things to you're doing as a, as a writer in terms of just getting to that um, point of emotional inflection with somebody if you like where you, you go bang and then, then you get the story then you get the goodies yeah, yeah. You know? this, this whole idea of empowering the squad was great because it was interesting yeah. we, did, we did the um, did the interview a couple of hours in the canteen, one of the can- canteens there, and she had a, you know, she goes, she basically gets her team to come up with a tactical game plan. You know, we went, there was a table next door where the goalkeeper was working out with a back four how, you know, how how the shape would be in certain attacking situations. So that's that's a leader with the courage to leave her or you know, ego behind, and it's modern management in the way that. Southgate's a modern manager and Mourinho's, you know, football's answer to T-Rex at the moment. You know, he's just, he's out of time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose when you look at, um, you know, people like Emma, she talked about, you know, my first instinct, and my first priority is to make sure that any man who works for me, be it a coach or support staff, is a better husband or a better person. So there's that. It's it's a it's a it's a warmth and a depth that that you know frankly blokes struggle with sometimes yeah. you know yeah um, and um, you know, I found a, I found a really interesting we're doing that talk sport thing you know you're in the studio and you've got the screen in front of you and they've got all the sort of tweets are coming in and I'm thinking I'm on talk sport I'm on radio bloke and we're talking about periods. And I just thought, wow, you know, what, what reaction are we going to get? And Sam, because Sam, uh, Sam and I were doing the program together, and he's leaning back in his seat, just going, "This is fantastic." You know? Yeah. You know, no one talks like this, yeah. and we only have one tweet. 
which was, you know, I don't turn on my radio to hear about periods. I, I want to hear about football. The rest was people saying, listen to this, this is amazing. So again, I suppose, you know, we all, you know, when we, were, when, you know, when we both started as, as newspaper journals, mm-hmm. it was all this mission to explain bit, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, newspapers, by, the, by their very nature, limit your ability to do that. Yes. There's some fantastic operators now. I think, I think modern football writing um, is probably the best it's ever been. There's some brilliant mm-hmm. operators out there at the moment. Um, but you are always limited by, by the canvas on which you can work, and yeah. that's where the book is. The books are, I think, you know, as I say, okay, I keep using the word, but and it's not trite and it's not false, but it, it is a privilege to actually have a, that amount of time and room to actually say, right, okay, this is what it is. Yeah. See what you think. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And going, going back to family briefly, I, I thought the the thing that struck me back in 2011 was the, the, the idea of total immersion. And I, I remember mm. saying that to Neil after I read the book. I was like, look, you know, the glory game, you get, you get the sense that he's around and he's dropping in and folk and all that. Um, we published a book by uh, Marty Peral now, Pep Confidential, yeah. uh, a few years ago, and he got probably more good, access good to, book. to really Pep good book. Than, yeah. Than, yeah. than just about anyone. Yeah. But, but it wasn't like total immersion, you know, he wasn't standing in the showers and stuff yeah. like that, you know, like watching everything going on. I, th- I thought uh, one of the things I was going to ask you was the kind of logistics of that is like, you were in like you know meetings where they were releasing players and things like mm. that. It was astonishing the access. But were you did, did you were you using a recorder all the time, or were you like getting shorthand notes down? How were you doing it? Because sometimes you can you need to be careful not to break the spell. Sometimes yeah, exactly. Do you know what I mean? A lot of it was scribble notes. I used to have yeah. like um, A4 pieces of plain paper, or if we were in a away game, I got mm. the team sheet. I, got, I nicked a couple of team sheets, so I just turned it over and wrote on the back. Uh, and it was verbatim language, so uh, yeah. but it's 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 like trigger point stuff, you know. Yes. You, you say, yeah. well, okay, um, you know, I've got a good memory, so I can say, well, I knew. So it's like this piece of like that that, so the 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 you know the the conversations are authentic. You're right. If you put, a, um, I, I used to use my tape recorder when I went into coach meetings. You know, there's always a Monday morning debrief for the coaches before yeah. training. Yeah. Uh, I always used to tape those. I'd tape stuff in the office, the manager's office. But for instance, when so for instance, when the, the opposing manager came in, I was just Mike, and you know, I was listening. And the moment I left, I was scribbling it down. Uh, but so, but everyone was aware of that. Uh, mm-hmm. I suppose even the opposing managers, when they came in, they were really interested in what mm-hmm. I was doing because mm-hmm. they were saying, "Well." How's it, how, how are you making it work? You know, are they, mm-hmm. are they opening up to you? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, well, are they being honest with you? Yeah. Is what they used yeah. to say. That's right. And 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 they were. And it's funny since you know that group because a couple of them have come back to me since, and they say we, we get it now. We get what you what you've done because that team will never die. That team will never get old mm-hmm. because it's in that book as they were at the time yeah. and the individuals within it. Yeah. And you know, frankly, I made one or two horrendous misjudgments. There was one. There was a lad called Lewis Graben, yeah. who I thought in that I thought there is no way on earth this kid's going to be in the game by the time he's twenty-one. This is a guy famously who sat, sits in the toilet while, yeah. while the team talk is going on because not yeah, because he needs the toilet, just because he's he can't he's be off. Yeah, he's had enough. He's he's out. And you know, I can remember <laughs> it was a reserve game, <clears throat> and and um, Richard Shaw, the manager, is knocking on the door on the toilet door. Yeah. Get out! Get out! I want to. I want to start the team talk. So he sullenly opens the door and he's sitting there on the throne with his, tra- with his shorts around his ankles. Wouldn't move. So that it was just 
I'm thinking this. You know, this you know, is it. He was a he was a really interesting kid, a fantastic athlete, and Ken had seen something in him. But I just couldn't see how he'd relate on a human level to anyone in a football club because he was just so different. Yeah, he's had five or six massive moves. He's you know he's he's earning thirty grand a week. In in financial terms, he's probably the most successful one out of that group. And I thought he was complete reject. Now you know how good am I? I'm a terrible judge of character, but. It is interesting. The boys come back to me and they say, you know, you got us and, you, and, and you've kept us, is what, is what they're saying. Yeah, but you say you thought about being a terrible judge of character. I, I, I would kind of dispute that because I, I think one of the things about your writing is you're very non judgmental. You know, mm. you present situations, mm. right? But I, you don't often insert yourself in a kind of a dominant way into it. I mean, I go back to State of Play, we'll talk about the Watford chapter, which is mm. quite interesting. I can't quite get my head around that business model. I think I can kind of understand what they're trying to do, and it's horses for courses, you know, the, the whole landscape of football has changed. I can kind of understand what they're trying to do. It rubs up against me a bit. But I thought, but you, you let that club tell, tell its story mm. in that mm. chapter. Mm. And, and I think you kind of guide us towards probably what you think. Mm. But you don't say, this is my club, and I think, you know, I think mm. this and I think that. Mm. So... Is that something you consciously do? To yeah. just say, well, there you go. If you look closely enough, you can probably get to where at what I think. Yeah. But it's about what you think. Yeah. Yeah, there's, um, you know, the way these things work is a brilliant guy called Paul McCarthy. You know, former journal. He is a consultant now and, and to several clubs. Very fair guy, very good. And he, he put, I went to him and said, look, I want, I want to do this chapter around Watford. And, um, you know, obviously Scott, the, the chief exec, knew I was sceptical of the model and everything else, but he wanted me to do it. And, you know, we had a sort of an introductory lunch, and, and, and I said, I can see it. And, it. and I said, look, you know, I want you to tell me. It's, it's what I said earlier on. Yeah. Tell me how you do your job. Mm. Show me your model. Mm. Preach to me. And I found uh, it was an interesting one because I get the business logic. I think it's a brilliant business mm. model. But it treats people as widgets, mm-hmm. and you know there are there are these people in sort of almost like in limbo all around the world, waiting for the call to come to Watford mm-hmm. for the Premier League. It's a bizarre. It's you know it's a brilliant financial model on a human level. I'm not so sure about it to be honest. But again, you give the guy the privilege of the platform. Tell me what you do. Tell me why you do it. Tell me how you do it. And then just basically let people make a judgment call on it and, yeah. and, and so again and that's something that I don't know what that chapter is 5,000 words whatever it is 5,500 you'd never get that platform anywhere else because, mm-hmm. you know, because unless you get like a long form online piece maybe you can get that mm-hmm. five, 6,000 words but by and large I think it worked for him and it worked for me yeah absolutely you know? I mean just, just finally in terms of we kind of started off talking about moments and capturing key moments and how you have to invest time and energy into people in order to capture these moments in time mm. in a hop calf type fashion the one moment that always stood out for me and family was um, a quote from um, Harris and he's talking about the Swindon player who injured him mm. um, yeah, well, he, no he actually injured a, a teammate and then he taunts Harris about the consequences of his testicular mm. cancer mm. operation and Harris has a go at him and then you're talking to Harris afterwards and, he, and, and Harris says he won't play at our place this season no way I don't think his manager will pick him but you know what I'm talking about Mike next time there's a ball to be, to be won smash 
he'll have to take his chance in the tackle. That is the other side of me. That's how football is. It's how life is. You have to stand up for yourself. And that was what I thought, wow. Because you talk about behind the veil. For me, that was behind the veil because there's a huge gap between sometimes how fans romanticise football and what it's like to be in a dressing room and how players get on with each other and the, the true realities. The true realities of how players view each other's talents. When you get inside, um, when you get behind that veil, it's, diff- it's so different. Mm. And for that, I thought that was a, a really kind of instructive moment because it gave you an insight into the attritional, brutal nature of professional football. Harris knows that he's going to do that guy. That guy knows that he's going to be done by Harris. Everyone's kind of signed up to this mm. unwritten contract. And that was a real behind-the-veil moment. I guess that's what you're looking for, isn't it? You're living for these moments where somebody, somebody just pulls it back and says, no, this, yeah. is, this is what it looks like. Yeah, I was, I was almost a, a pro by proxy there when, yeah. I, when he was talking to me. But that was, again, because I'd been around the club for yeah. you know, a number of months at that time. There was, you know, there, there was no pretense. It was the reality of it. And, and it's interesting that Neil's now the manager. Yeah. And you know, he still has that brutality or that ruthlessness. Really nice guy. You know, in the new edition of the family, I, I, you know, I did a sort of 5,000 5, word introduction uh, where you know, he's talking. So I went back to Wembley seven years after and they went up at Wembley mm-hmm. in, in, in almost the same manner mm-hmm. um, and went up to the championship. And Neil, as manager, he found himself in the situation. One of the great guys in, in, in the original book was a guy called Tony Craig, a brilliant pro. And he was the one who, who injured himself in the first half at Wembley. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was in the dressing room at half-time in the original uh, playoff game. And, you know, I saw him. You know, he was, in, he was in tears. Harris came over and hugged him before they went out to the second half. Uh, very close individuals. Yet Harris, as a manager, knew that Tony had come to the end of his useful life as a, as a championship player moved him on to Bristol Rovers mm-hmm. they're still mates TC calls Neil Gaffer or he called him Gaffer in, in the premises he called him Chops his, his nickname's Chopper outside that and they're friends but he moved his friend on because he wasn't he wasn't going to do it for him mm-hmm. yeah. that's the reality yeah that's the reality of it yeah. and you know you, you look at Neil he, he's, a, he's a really nice guy and you know Ken's the same very quiet people who don't really know where they are with him that's and that's that's frankly you know tactical in many ways yeah but when push comes to shove they're conditioned to act in their own best interests mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. if that means getting rid of a friend it yeah. means getting rid of a friend yeah. and that's you know it's quite something <laughs> yeah um and I wouldn't judge them harshly on that I get I get why they do it and I think people people buy into that because they live it every day. They live that sort of in that Darwinian world. Yeah. You yeah. know, that one day natural selection is going to turn up and, and yeah. you know, you're going to be, you know, out there with a dodo. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so we'll just finish by saying number one, read state of buy and read state of play. Uh, number two, buy and read Arthur Hopcraft. Yeah. And number three, if people haven't read family then rewind right back to the start and read that because that's all the seeds of of the rest of your work I think are in that initial book yeah thank you and um, yeah 
family it was where it all started for me yeah. um, and I hope state of play gives people an idea of how far um, you know we've come on the journey since then absolutely it's a pleasure thank you very much loved it cheers mate Thanks to Mike for agreeing to this interview. Keep up with Mike on Twitter at Calvin Book and Family is available everywhere in paperback and ebook. Also, please check out Mike's new book, State of Play, Under the Skin of the Modern Game. Finally, the next episode will be Neil's conversation with Jonathan Northcroft, football correspondent of the Sunday Times. Jonathan has just written a book for Backpage called Deadlines and Darts with Delhi, which is his World Cup diaries from the summer in Russia. The book is out on October the 8th and if you want to prepare for the podcast by reading the book, order it in paperback and Kindle at all retailers. Finally, please do us a big favour, subscribe to this podcast now and leave a quick review on iTunes. Also explore our back catalogue including interviews with Henry Winter, Rory Smith, David Winner, Simon Cooper and more. Mom deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.